Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center in the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yaangna that we now know of as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam descendants who are part of the Gabrielenio Tongva and the Fernandenio Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. Hello, everyone. I'm Moira Shuri, Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. <clears throat> we publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org, on podcast platforms and on YouTube. So please subscribe to our latest programs. Welcome to the annual Zocalo Poetry and Book Prizes. Thank you for joining us to celebrate as a community again after more than two years. Tim Disney has championed these awards. With his sponsorship, we have increased our prize money and are able to expand our poetry recognitions. This entire event has been made possible by his stewardship and generosity. We are in for a wonderful program. In a few minutes, Mr. Disney will present the book prize to Heather McGee for her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather is joining a distinguished group of authors that includes Daniel Allen, Michael Ignatieff, Sherry Turkle, and most recently, Jialin Yang. Heather will give a short lecture on the ideas she explores in The Sum of Us Renata Simrel, president and CEO of the LA84 Foundation, will interview Heather about the themes in her book. And please stay for our reception where we can continue the conversation. But first, I'm going to hand it over to the winner of Zocalo's annual poetry prize, Chelsea Rathburn, for her poem, 8 a.m. Ocean Drive. We seek to recognize a US poem that best evokes a connection to place. Chelsea's poem, 8 a.m. Ocean Drive, transports us to Miami's South Beach to observe a rare moment of early morning quiet in a city most of us know for its glamour and nightlife. Chelsea, who is originally from Miami, is the author of three collections of poetry, and in 2019, she was appointed the Poet Laureate of Georgia. We're excited to award the Zocalo Poetry Prize to Chelsea Rathburn. Congratulations, Chelsea. I'm Chelsea Rathburn, and I'm honored to have been awarded the Zocalo Poetry Prize. This is my poem, 8 a.m., Ocean Drive. The morning opens like a shell under steam, but that's too warm a metaphor for early March on Miami Beach, where despite the breeze and gentle sun, the streets are empty except for delivery trucks and trash collectors 
and people waiting for the bus. What I mean to say is there's a gradual unfolding. Everything golden and green, sunlight on the palm trees and hibiscus, parking spots glittering like gifts. The drunks who stood outside my window at 4 a.m. shouting across the imagined chasm of the alley are still asleep. The tourists are just now rising. And I, neither tourist nor citizen, walk the streets I used to know, looking for landmarks, matching buildings to memories. We're trying to, the galleries and boutiques years gone, guessable only by the curve of a wall here, a design laid into a terrazzo floor. Around me, the work that makes the dream possible. Trucks unload into kitchens and bodegas. Waiters scour tables, men mop floors. Even the sidewalks are freshly hosed. By afternoon, these streets will be impassable. The sidewalks too, with so much splendor, such conspicuous leisure. But now, there's room to notice the valets idling and how in the alley between hotels, past dumpsters and service doors, a man carries an armful of fallen palm fronds carefully off like a bouquet. Thank you. That was beautiful. Congratulations, Chelsea. I have notes. Uh, good evening. My name is Tim Disney. I'm proud and pleased to sponsor this year's Zocalo Book Prize and Poetry Prize. For 12 years, Zocalo Public Square has awarded its annual book prize to the author of a nonfiction book that best enhances our understanding of community and the forces that strengthen or undermine human connectedness and social co cohesion. I'm honored to present this year's prize to Heather McGee for her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. For me, this book stood out for its compassion and optimism, while never shying away from its stark examination of the pathology of racism. The widely quoted swimming pool analogy in the book, and I'm referring to the phenomenon of communities tearing out public pools rather than sharing them with others, in the aftermath of civil rights legislation was particularly effective and meaningful. It's been widely quoted for a reason. To make that choice, to tear up your own pool so that somebody else couldn't use it, is so manifestly wasteful, petty, small-minded, and self-destructive, almost comically so. And yet I think that all of us can relate to that feeling and, and have acted on it at times on the playground as kids and in more dressed up ways as, a, as adults. At the same time, we probably have all regretted that and made amends for that and shared the thing that we withheld or atoned for our transgressions. This really brought home to me that this problem is in all of us, that it arises from us. And as Heather so compellingly demonstrates in her book, so does the solution. Heather, as we know, is a leading scholar of economic and social policy, the former president of Demos, a think tank, and currently chairs the board of the online racial justice organization, Color of Change. We are super excited to recognize her work today. And now I am pleased to present the 12th annual Zocalo Book Prize to Heather McGee.
have to you have to solve it. I do. I have to solve it. Yeah. <laughs> Really, thank you. This is so exciting. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you for your support, your vision uh, for making sure that this beautiful mission uh, of Zocalo Public Square is one that is carried through letters and that people who share that vision and that mission uh, receive the kind of support uh, and applause for putting it forth boldly at a time when rancor and division seems like the spirit of the day. So thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of the judges. Uh, thank you to ASU, to Moira, to the staff who's put together this beautiful event. Um, this is very, very cool for me. This is an in-person award ceremony. I just, it's wonderful. So thank you for being here. I'm really eager to have the conversation with Renata and um, to engage in audience questions from you and online, but I was asked to give a lecture. It's not gonna be a lecture, um, but I am going to speak for just a bit um, obviously about the themes of the book, but also about what's on my mind and my heart right now. So the Some of Us came out in January, I believe, of 2020. I finished writing, 2021. I finished writing it in November of 2020, right when we found out uh, who would be the victor in the November election. And, and as you may recall, that was a moment of great optimism and a sense that we had come together that a multiracial, anti-racist majority had de defeated the politics of divide and conquer, that we were coming off the heels of a summer that had seen the largest social movement in American history, and that we were going to be able to put right what was broken. Then January 6th happened. I choose to remember that week also that January 5th happened, where Georgia, sent a black man and a Jewish man to the United States Senate. And all of this, these steps forward, these extraordinary refilling of the pool of public goods, the child tax credit, the kinds of moratoriums on rent and, uh, and foreclosure, the pause on student loan debts, that frankly has been the government doing more things to help more people than I have seen in my lifetime. I consider all of that, all of that that helped to bring the poverty rate to its lowest level on record in 2021, to have been solidarity dividends. Now, as Tim said, the idea of the drained pool, that self-sabotage, the cost of racism to everyone has definitely been the sort of metaphor at the heart of the book. And it's been what most people have taken away from it. As to the zero sum, Right, the zero sum idea that there's sort of a fixed pie of well-being and progress for one group must mean, uh, must come at the expense of others. And we saw that zero sum in the research that the University of Chicago did when they looked closely at what was animating the attackers of our capital on January 6th. Was it economic anxiety? Uh, no. Was it that they were from particularly red counties? No, it was actually that they were guided by this vision, 
that a multiracial America was going to be a threat to something core in their identity, to the dominance of their tribe, and that they had to take up arms against it. That was the zero sum that nearly cost us a peaceful transfer of power. And then, of course, just two weeks ago, that same zero-sum idea now dressed up in what is being called the great replacement theory. It's just old. It's the same thing. Led to the loss of too many lives of people who were just walking into the grocery store. Of a father buying a cake for his son's, his toddler's birthday. We know that the zero sum and the drained pool have been recurring parts of American history. We know that they have cost lives. We know that, as I write in the book, because everything we believe comes from a story we've been told, it is our duty and our obligation to keep asking who is telling us these stories? Who is selling the idea of the zero sum? Who is telling us that we should destroy public goods rather than share them? And how are they profiting from selling those ideas? And ultimately, this is the, the idea that gives me hope. Because if we think that we as Americans are all just out here at each other's throats, that we are constantly going to be at odds, that we are bitterly divided, then maybe it's possible to give in to the idea that it is a zero sum, that the only way to conquer racism is for one side of the divide to be defeated itself. But if you think about the fact that it has always been a narrow self-interested elite who has sold these ideas of the zero sum, of the racial hierarchy, the false notion that some groups of people are better than others. That idea has been sold for profit by a narrow self-interested elite and they're doing it again today. And so they are who we have to hold accountable. And in the breach, we can reach out we can recognize that our story of solidarity across lines of race and origin can and must be stronger than the story of the zero sum. And that ultimately, that's what it's all about. Whose story is loudest in the ear of the American mind? Who is making meaning of what's happening, of all the momentous changes that are going on in our society? Who is saying what it means that we will soon be a country with no racial majority? Is it a great thing? Is it a fearful thing? I think the answer is, it's a hard thing. And we have to work at it every single day. And that's why now, Nearly two years into the sum of us being in the world, five years into it being in my body and in my mind and in my heart, the idea of the book that is still stuck with me, that I still haven't exercised fully yet, is the idea that concludes the book. 
And that's the idea of the solidarity dividend, of these gains that can be unlocked, but only when we link arms across lines of race and origin. For the past nine months or so, I have been back out on the road. I have gone to nearly a dozen different parts of the country to collect new stories of cross-racial coalitions, the kind that are in the book. But this is in a different medium. It's for a podcast. It's an audio documentary. I have been to rural Nevada, back to the streets of Lewiston, Maine. I've been to Memphis, Tennessee, and Kansas City, and Manhattan Beach, California. And I've been collecting these stories with an extraordinary team of producers who have taught me so much about a medium that I frankly didn't quite know enough about when I signed up to do this project. They have been helping me shape a series that is really about the often overlooked victories of the past number of years and also the way in which when we come together across lines of race, when we see each other's humanity, the sky is the limit for what we can accomplish. So one of the most common questions that I've been getting as I've been talking to people about the book, virtually mostly, but sometimes in person, is what gives you hope? And I think people are saying that not idly, right? They're saying, please, give me hope. And I will say this, what gives me hope is that ultimately our ancestors have faced challenges far greater than the ones we face. And they took on those fights with far less than we have today. And they did not despair. If they had despaired, none of us would be here. And so who are we to despair? What gives me hope is that even though it is not wired for the algorithm, even though it does not create more outrage, more tension, more clicks, and therefore more profit, in every corner of this country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things for and with one another. And it's those stories, those examples that we have to lift up. We have to lift them up because we are social creatures, as this pandemic has reminded us. We are social creatures whose minds are wired for story, who follow what we see, who are looking around us at a time of great change and tumult to see where are we going. Who are we? What can we be to one another? And so yes, there is a sense that the outrage, the antisocial behavior, the screaming at school boards, the refusals to wear a mask when it is required, when it is helpful to your neighbor, when it could save lives the violence, the rhetoric, the demagoguing. It's hard not to look at that because it's astonishing and because it sells in our media infrastructure.
But that is not the story of our people. That is not the story of our people. The story of our people, just as much as all of the pain that I recount in The Some of Us, which readers have told me has sometimes been hard to read, that they've had to put the book down. And I certainly, as I was writing it, often had to step away from the computer, had to take a walk, had to play with my toddler. But those truths, those inconvenient truths, are important to know because they help you take account of how strong we are, of how many heroes have come together to bend the arc of the moral universe towards justice. They have done it together. And here's a little thing that we don't often talk about. All of the moments of great social progress led by women, indigenous people, people of color, black people, have always had some co-conspirator by their side, have always had someone who was not the most impacted, who was willing to be there, often to give their lives in service of that struggle. Those are the American heroes we need to lift up. Those are the stories that we need to elevate to remind us of who we can be for one another and to one another. And so that's what gives me hope, is that those people actually are more numerous today than they were five years ago when I started this journey. That is part of why you're seeing the fight today is not about laws and policies when it comes to racial justice, it's about trying to get us to unlearn what we have learned over the past number of years, to go back to sleep, to ban the ideas, the knowledge, the books, the thoughts, because that is reminding us of the power of the human heart to change the course of history when it makes a simple agreement with another human heart. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Am I? Yes, I am on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing this book and your five-year journey. Um, my husband will tell you who is in the audience. Um, I carry that book around. It was very um, powerful. It's very simple, yet very complex. Um, I put it in the genre more of history um, because it lays out so clearly and so concisely with grace, uh, without judgment, the history of this country um, in a way I think should be mandatory reading um, for every child in school. Um, it is also um, you know, so deeply personal to me in the work that I do running the foundation um, and our charitable arm, the Play Equity Fund, which is the only nonprofit focused on sport and play as a social justice issue. And so when you talk about inequities, yeah. when you talk about the power of sport and movement and the work to change mindsets, uh, to make sure you have PE after school sports recess within our public schools okay. um, as a pathway, as a learning pedagogy for our young kids, um, it really helped give clarity and a, a, a redefined purpose in my work. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, so you're calling it demos uh, was to change was to change the rules to bring economic freedom to those who lacked it today. Hmm. But the tools of economic policy research felt inadequate for you. Can you explain why and how those feelings led you on this journey to write this book? Well, sure. Thank you so much, Renata, for that question. Um, uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say one other thing. It's just thank you to my family who is here. Um, my cousin, my dad, my stepmother, my husband. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, my son is also not here in this room, thank goodness. Um, or he would definitely be making his presence known. Um, uh, and, all, and to all the friends and colleagues who are here to support me tonight. It's really beautiful. Um, you know, I don't. I don't want to betray. You know, Demos still is 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 oper in in operation and is doing great work, and think tanks do great work. And I and there's a moment for policy. And in fact, we're sort of in one of those moments. Um, I did get a little bit of the bug in the first sort of year of the Biden Harris administration when there were just all of these big policy ideas coming through, and I thought, oh, I kind of missed that, right? And yet. The reason why I felt ultimately that the tools of economic policy design, of research statistical analysis and advocacy weren't sufficient was that the data was so clear, remains so clear. We are such an outlier among our peer economies on virtually every measure of well-being. Inequality is getting worse. And in fact, some of the common sense sort of nice things that I talk about at the opening of the book, right? Paid family leave, universal childcare, jobs that keep workers out of poverty, a well-funded public school in every neighborhood. These are the types of things that we absolutely can afford, right? We crunch the numbers, we can absolutely afford them. In fact, it is costing us so much not to do them. And they would be smart investments. And yet somehow, it still seems out of reach. And so that somehow was what I felt like I personally wanted to get my arms around. Um, so this was not sort of a polemical journey. It was a journey of inquiry for me. Um, I discovered so many things along the way. And I also felt like it wasn't that we didn't have the solutions. It was that we didn't, we couldn't come together to fight for them. Mm. And that ultimately, to put it in very blunt terms, it was the majority of white people who, even though they're the largest group of the uninsured and the largest group of the impoverished, right? And, and you know, the majority of white people, um, white, you know, college uh, graduates, you know, go into student loan debt, right? All of these problems impact them as well their political allegiance and ideological allegiance had drifted away from the public good and from supporting the kinds of common sense solutions that would make their lives better. And I felt like I needed to know why. Hmm. Talk about that a little bit for those in the audience who haven't read the book yet, but you do have an opportunity to purchase it tonight and read it. Um, you're referring to the dog whistle politics, the mm -hmm. conditioning that that white majority that you just, that you just described um, are preconditioned to believe in this zero-sum theory? Yes. I mean, I, um, as I said, you know, everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so, and politics um, is, a, is a huge arena for storytelling, right, for meaning-making. 
Um, and ultimately, um, you know, we used to have a story among the majority of white Americans that was very supportive of public goods, right? It was sort of the New Deal public goods paradigm. Um, one of the sort of wild statistics that I uncovered in the research for the book was that in 1956 and 1960, two-thirds of white Americans believed that the government ought to guarantee a job for anyone who wanted one, who couldn't find one in the private sector, and guarantee a minimum level of income below which no family should fall. So nearly 70% of white folks in the US, 1956 and 1960, supported a universal basic income and a job guarantee, right? So the, the reaction in the room is that that's sort of impossible to even imagine, right. right, in today's politics, right? So what happened? Between 1960 and 1964, support among white folks for those two economic guarantees fell nearly in half. So I have to look, right, beyond the spreadsheet. What, what could have happened between 60 and 64 to cause this radical shift in public opinion? 1963, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Actually, a federal job guarantee and a national living wage were two of the core set of demands, right? Um, 1963 was also the year that Kennedy went, President Kennedy went on a media blitz around civil rights, firmly sort of committing his party, the party of the New Deal, uh, to civil rights. And then, of course, we know that his successor, Lyndon Johnson, would, after signing the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, become the last Democrat running for president to win the majority of white voters to this day. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I just, I digress thinking about um, conversations around the dinner table and, you know, we often say it's the man that's, you know, <laughs> right? The man that's puppeting, um, bringing you in my living room now that's, you know, that's sort of controlling all this. And it's, it's hard to believe that there is a system um, that is perpetuating sort of this conditioning of the zero sum game. But it was interesting in the book, um, and I don't remember what chapter it was in, that you talk about some tapes that you uncovered and how that narrative had changed over that timeline that you just mm -hmm. described. Can you share that with the audience? The, the tapes that I Yeah, the tapes about um, you know, how, uh, I think it was Lyndon. Oh, yes, Lyndon I know what you're Lyndon talking Johnson, about. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Um, so um, this is actually, I believe it was actually Bob Herbert who first broke a wonderful um, uh, journalist who first broke this story. These were these Atwater tapes, Lee Atwater. That's right, that's right, Lee Atwater. So uh, Lee Atwater was one of, was the man, right? Lee Atwater right. was one of the um, political strategists, architects of uh, the sort of rise of the, of the uh, right wing and, and Reagan, from Nixon to Reagan. And, and he had a quote um, where he said basically that you start out in you know, the 60s talking about uh, inward, 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 inward. And that that sort of works to create an ideal, you know, that, that works with the sort of white voters, right? That, that can sort of pull them together to make a sense of this is who we are, this is, this is what the political question is. But, you know, basically, essentially what he said is sort of civil rights movement was too successful. You can't say that anymore after a time. And so then you have to talk about things in more coded terms like uh, forced busing, as if like it's the buses that are the problem, right? As opposed to actually school integration, right? Things like states' rights. It's, we really want to defend the rights of states to do things as opposed to 
the rights of people in states to segregate, right? So you use these coded language. And then what was the turn that was so important for the rise of economic inequality uh, and the sort of plutocratic agenda was by the end, he's saying, then you're talking about things like cutting spending and cutting taxes. And of course, everybody in his audience knows that what you're talking about is government, which has now been on the side of black people since the civil rights movement and this sort of uh, political story. Um, black people get hurt worse than whites, um, but you don't have to mention race at all. All you have to talk about is cutting spending and cutting taxes. Right? So that was in a very succinct and colorful you know, paragraph quote um, that I just paraphrased, a, a way to explain drained pool politics, right? how we got from fear of integration to fear of government itself, to resentment of government, and therefore withdrawal of support among the majority of white voters for the kinds of public goods that helped to create a whites-only middle class in the New Deal period. And so that's, that's another story that I tell is how the, the pool was a whites-only pool, as was the middle class, because of all of these phenomenal, generous public goods from Social Security to the GI Bill to the massive investment in housing that were created in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, back when government was a great thing. Uh, and everybody loved government. I mean, not everybody, but there were so many beneficiaries of it um, who you know, are still enjoying intergenerational wealth today, but are now politically opposed to those kinds of public goods now that they would be furnished on a more equal basis. Mm. Mm. So as a black woman navigating these systems of, of inequity and injustice, it's of an, that's the, just huge chasm of, of, of need and despair. Have you always talked about or delved into race in your work? No, no, no. I am. Um, I mean, yes, but no, not as the primary piece, right? So um, I've come to joke about this now because um, when I was growing up, my mom was, uh, was a race man, right? My mom was, when I, my earliest memories of her were um, teaching a multicultural education curriculum uh, when, uh, like, flying all around the country to, to train teachers on multicultural education in the 1980s, right? Um, and she, you know, would go on to to always have racial equity at the heart of her work, and 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 be the architect of uh, the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Framework, um, and all of this, right? That's been sort of her work. And I think, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of me was like, I'm going to do a different thing, right? That's not it's my mom's thing. I'm going to do another thing. It's kids, right? I'm right. It's kids, right? Um, no, um, I'm going to. Um, I'm going to be a class person, right? I am going to hmm. look at the math. I am going to uh, do the thing, frankly, that is less um, expected of a black woman, right? Uh, to go into economics and to, you know, geek out on financial regulation and to really see how the economic rules are what, you know, make everything possible or impossible. And, and I do feel that way. You know, it is very clear to me that, you know, today's lived experience walking block by block through any community has to do with economic policy decisions made 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 80 years ago, 400 years ago, right? And hmm. it's very clear. That said, I sort of kept tripping over race. And um, in the very white world of economic policy think tanks, 
having to help my colleagues uh, understand the way that so many of the head scratchers of what they were working on, right? Why have we stopped funding public college just at the time when college becomes essential for a middle class life, mm -hmm. right? Like, why did we do that? Mm -hmm. You know, and you can sort of run all the analyses you want, but it's like the why, not just the hows. You know, how did we go from a 90% marginal tax rate on the last dollar to, you know, our billionaires paying little to nothing in taxes? Mm. Like, we understand how, we, we know when this why? policy changed, but why? Um, and that was where I felt like if, if we weren't really looking at the core question of who we are to one another, the core question of, of, of race in this highly racialized society where policy has been so explicitly racialized for most of our history, then we were, it's not that we didn't have a racial equity lens, it's that we had blinders on and we needed to take them off. Would you say most of our history or all of our history? I mean, well, when I say most of our history, I'm talking about explicitly, you know, using redlining maps, right, until a generation ago. Um, I am talking about um, explicitly saying these are the neighborhoods that will be erased and destroyed by eminent domain. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about, you know, the kind of stuff that, frankly, most people put in black and white. Um, and most people put in sort of colored water fountain days. Um, absolutely, there are so many policies that have profound systemically racist impacts that are being passed today and, sure. and you know, regulated today. Um, but I think it's, yeah, most of our history, most of the 20th century. Yeah. Right. No, I, so if you think about the founding of the country and, mm -hmm. you know, a black man being two-thirds, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's embedded in the Constitution yeah. that we aren't Americans yeah. as black people. And the, I think the policies that you talk about over the last, you know, 20 years are just a reflection of those in power who want the founding of our Constitution before it was rewritten to stay the same. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're right. I mean, I think... Um, that's why I really felt like I had to include a chapter about democracy in a mm -hmm. book that was mostly about the economy and, and economic policy because um, from the three-fifths clause through the electoral college, through the filibuster, right, these, these structures that are fundamentally about who gets to be a citizen and mm -hmm. on what terms are still, um, you know, functioning uh, in many ways today. And they're still making what's supposed to be the greatest democracy on earth less than, right? Um, you know, we, we should be 100% democracy. Um, everybody should vote, right? Everybody should vote. We should have the kind of society where people really feel engaged and like they have a voice. And the opposite yeah. is true, right? So I didn't want to get to solutions yet, so I might go back and, 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 and meander here on some of the questions, but you brought up democracy. And, and you know, when you think about um, the logjam that we have in, in, uh, in our government, mm -hmm. um, particularly on the Senate side, mm -hmm. so I call it democracy with a small d. Um, what do you think that plays in the phenomenon of the zero-sum politics when we have parity in Senate in terms of the Senate seats, 50 Republican, 50 Democrat, but 45.5 million people 
-hmm. that are represented by the Democrats don't ostensibly have a voice. And then you look at, um, you know, we talk about education and reading this book, um, and, and it should be required reading, but 12 states have voted to not have any mm -hmm. books on racism or sexism, mm -hmm. the critical race theory. Mm -hmm. So what does that play in? Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, the only clause in our constitution that can't be changed. Mm. So what is the solution if we have democracy with a small d as opposed to democracy with a big d? So, um, you know, I think that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I told you I, I went down the rabbit hole with this book. <laughs> Sorry. And, I'm, and I love it. I love it. Um, so I think I'm going to say something I've actually never said, but I, I think that it, in, as long as we have these structures at play in our government that create the opportunity for minority rule, mm -hmm. for um, uh, sort of affirmative action for rural white people, which is mm -hmm. what the Senate is. Um, <laughs> yes. Or, Can we get an amen on that? <laughs> uh, then I think it means that ultimately this consciousness work is even more important because it requires us to have a truly multiracial anti-racist majority in this country that doesn't just include people of color, that doesn't just include people in cities, but that it requires us to unite to fight against the purveyors mm -hmm. of the zero-sum right. fear, right? And so, I mean, the thing is, the plutocrats are really getting this power on the cheap, right? Because people who are doing fine but not great mm -hmm. are supporting people who, you know, are flying themselves to the moon. And people who are seeing all that they loved and that gave them pride and gave them a sense of meaning just, you know, be boxed up and shipped away are also supporting that ideology. Right. Um, and so I think that we have, and this is, you know, I mean, this is not, it's, of course, the how to get it done is, is the real question. The um, but we really have to recognize that being a multiracial dem democracy is hard. It's challenging work. And it's going to require more persuasion, more um, listening, and more... Uh, institution building so that, and more accountability on the people who are selling these ideas for their profit, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether that's media reform, antitrust, all of that. Um, so we've both got to like sort of choke off the supply of hate yep. and the zero sum lie. And we've got to get in there and be there yep. um, with one another and for one another to help make meaning in a way that is not you know, fears of boogeymen, um, which is what is being sold That's right. so often. And I think it's, um, it's the personal connection. Um, you know, I left this book feeling sad for white people. Hmm. Um, you know, Rachel comes to mind um, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the after 
mm -hmm. uh, that you added um, after you wrote the book, and you know just the pain that she felt yeah. from being preconditioned to believe something that deprived her from the fullness of not just being an American, but the fullness of the diversity that this country provides. Talk a little bit about your interactions with Tracy. So, um, so there's so many different pieces here. So. Um, Renata's referring to a couple things. One is the, the afterword, which is in the paperback version, which um, I will say if my editor, Chris Jackson, is um, watching this, you were right that I should write it. I was furious. I was like, why? He asked me to write it. I swear it was like three months into the book, the hardcover being out. He's like, okay, great. So now can you write an essay for the afterword? And I was yep. like, this isn't a blog post. I don't. I shouldn't have to keep updating this every six months. Like, when does it, was, it end? There was so much in between. You <laughs> but had a George, lot had, had the election. You had You're George right. Floyd. A it lot was, had happened. Yes. A lot had happened. It was January sixth. Right. It was the attacks yeah. on critical race theory. It mm -hmm. was, um, you know, the uh, the American Rescue Plan. Like a lot had actually happened. Um, but and you had President Biden quoting your yes, book. Yes, that's true. That's true. And so there was a lot. There was a lot to say. And, and one of the things that um, you know, getting back to this extremely important question of of what truths are allowed to be taught in our schools, um, there's a, a a woman who um, told me last summer that although she had been educated, lived in Oklahoma all her life, had been educated in Oklahoma public schools, like from kindergarten through grad school, she had not heard of the Tulsa massacre until recent years, right? Um, she didn't say she um, didn't hear of it, uh, except for the watchman, but it's possible, right? I mean, it really <laughs> is possible, right? Recent years, maybe it was the run up to the anniversary, but maybe it was also the watchman, right? So, and so she felt robbed. Yep. She felt lied to. She felt furious that a huge piece, not only of, you know, the history of her state and all of that, but also an explanatory piece for the disparities that she recognized driving through Tulsa as a child, right? And that's the missing piece, right? If you don't know the history and you see the disparities today, what sense do you make of those disparities? You blame them on the people who are suffering. Yep. And then that means you create this alienation, which then gets exploited by the powerful, right? To say, you, are, you don't want to be them. And they've done something wrong. You are better than them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think is the power of knowing our history is to know why things are the way they are and that they can be changed too. Right? Because if there is just something, if black people are just allergic to money and we just like can't hold on to it, then like what, what you know? Can't but no, it. like once you know that, that Black Wall Street existed and that it was firebombed and then that you know, which I did not even know, even though I would known about. Right, right. But I did not know that the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa rebuilt and was then destroyed again because of the highway system. And, and as I've been traveling in the country for this podcast, the story of the highways destroying these beautiful, thriving black neighborhoods that you see the photographs of it, it's just like, it's just, it, it just rocks you because it's 
black banks and cotillions and grocery stores and like just all of these things that have just been wiped away from consciousness so that we don't believe that the black community had anything at any point, right? And so, you know, anyway, so that, that the violence that is done by m making us not know why the disparities exist today is, is something that this white suburban woman said, you know, I felt robbed of not knowing that. I felt like someone lied to me and I'm mad about it. And I felt her reaction was, was interesting because I think in my experience, and you chronicled this in the book, um, I was also another data point I was just mind boggled by is that 8% of school age kids realize that the civil rights was about slavery, I mean, uh, the Civil War was about slavery. Yeah. But, but it's, it's that she didn't feel um, shame. She didn't mm -hmm. feel mm -hmm. um, as if it was something that she um, held blame for. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the work, the hard work you talk about that we have to do is how do we approach the reality and the truth of our history without feeling shame? Yeah. Um, you talk about Ruby, um, the six-year-old who integrated, um, you know, the schools. Why well, am I forgetting her Ruby last Bridges, name? Ruby Bridges. Yeah. Ruby yeah. Bridges, and that she, you know, the six-year-old can integrate a white school, but white people can't read about their history mm -hmm. of this country. Yeah. So, so you really talk about, and I think it's in the in the context of storytelling, right? You shifted from being an economist mm -hmm. and putting up data, mm -hmm. and people weren't paying attention to the data. And I found what most compelling in your book was the story of people. Um, the story of um, diverse people fighting for $15 minimum wage. Um, how do you, though, scale that level of acceptance, um, truth and reconciliation, you know, when the average uh, citizen has a high school graduation mm -hmm. rate? I mean, is that a high bar mm -hmm. to, accept, to, to expect us to accept our history um, and then to be able to move toward reconciliation? I mean, it really is the question, Renata. Um, so that's where we come back to organizing, mm -hmm. right? That is where, honestly, you know, as I um, taught myself labor history, um, because it certainly wasn't, you know, offered uh, in my education, um, that's where I found myself deeply inspired by the ability of worker organizing over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries to get to massive scale, mm. um, you know, and, and, and W.B. Du Bois, who, you know, I quote in the book is talking about the, the wages of whiteness, the sort of, um, the psychological wage that very often uh, white workers will accept rather than be united with workers of color to get a material wage. They'll accept the idea that they're just better than, even though, that is a tool that the boss uses to divide and conquer a, a workforce. He talks about that, but Du Bois also talks about how um, he had, there was no other, I'm paraphrasing here, there was no stronger force for the alleviation of prejudice among the masses than labor unions. Mm -hmm. And you know, he wrote that 100 years ago and um, just recently, there was a great big study about how labor organizing diminishes anti-black and anti-brown prejudice among white workers, right? And 
we have been at various times in our country massively at scale with worker organizing, where you know this word solidarity that I love so much, that Manuel Pastor loves so much, his great book called Solidarity Economics, um, you know, is not a word that most people in America say that often. But if you're in a union, you do. Yeah. Right. It's a word that has meaning because you know what it means, which is we stand together, we fight for each other, and we win together. You have a common purpose. Yes, that's right. Um, and of course, right now we're experiencing this this beautiful resurgence of of labor organizing, of worker power, of worker um, leverage, and collective bargaining. Um, and it's interesting that it's it's much of it is black led, yep. and um, much of it is coming outside of the traditional labor unions of the of the 20th century. And I think there's something very interesting about that, um, whether it's Starbucks or Amazon. Yeah, yeah. one of my first. Um, Organizing jobs was USCW 770. Both my parents were in the clerks union, so we uh, were on the picket line strikes. They did not. Uh, they did not cross the picket line. Um, I have like 500 questions left, <laughs> but I only have time for one. Um, so, you know, you talk about W. E. Du Bois, um, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, there's more that binds us than divides us, mm -hmm. and that when you find those opportunities where we can see our shared value and what we have in common. Um, then that's when we can realize the solidarity benefit. So where do you see the greatest opportunity to create these bonds when we still have very segregated schools, communities, mm -hmm. politics, and even play um, mm -hmm. you know, in the work that I do? Where do you see yeah. the greatest opportunity for us to achieve that solidarity? Understanding that's a lot of work and that it's a long art to get to that justice that we so desperately seek. Well, I will say, I mean, just in... in, in um with respect to your work, I, I love, right, I mean, so the cover of the book was something I felt very strongly about, and, and we, there's a young reader's version that's coming out at the beginning okay. of next year okay. um, that has, um, which I'm so excited about, I mean, it's so excited. It's a middle grade version of the book. Um, smart middle grader, I think, um, as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay. But um, it's a middle grade version of the book, and. And we kept basically the cut, like we sort of zoomed in on the kids playing. Mm -hmm. Because there is something about the innocence of youth, the, the sort of joy of play across lines of color and the way that children should see no stranger and know no stranger. That's just so powerful. Um, I actually think, in answer to your question just, just briefly, that it, it really is the, the most hope that I have is in worker organizing. Mm. Um, because when we look at the service sector, the retail sector, um, those are multiracial workforces. Those are often now people who have college degrees, who are stuck in jobs that are pay less than $15, and they want to make them better. And the spark has been, has been lit. Yeah, no, it's certainly, um, I can speak for both my husband and I um, with our parents being and unions that had helped them both buy homes yeah. that wouldn't have been afforded otherwise. You know, just a, a point on the uh, cover of the book, I was really drawn to the cover of the book, and one of the largest programs we have is a Learn to Swim program. Mm -hmm. um, so we work to teach third graders how to swim. And it always dawned on me is why is there the gap between mm -hmm. you know, white kids who can swim and black kids, black and brown, it's not just um, black kids, but primarily black kids don't swim, and it's the number one cause of drowning in mm -hmm. this world. Um, and so it was really interesting to me, it was the closed public pool, yeah. which 
the impetus for that closed public school was a, was a black boy drowning in a river because yeah. he couldn't swim in the local That's pool. Right. Right. Um, so like as I said, it had very personal, um, very personal attachment to me reading this book. So thank you again. Thank um, you. I think we're going to turn it over to audience questions. I have a couple from the um, YouTube channel. And those who do want to ask live questions, if you can just go to stage, I guess that'd be your stage right, my stage left. So some of the online questions is, what did you learn from visiting Bruce's Be Bruce Beach? Oh, great. Um, Does everybody know what Bruce Beach is? Maybe explain that a little sure. bit. Sure. OK, so this is, this is great. So um, I, I think because I, I mentioned that I'd gone to Manhattan Beach. So for the podcast, which, by the way, is going to be called The Sum of Us, and it comes out uh, at the end of July, um, uh, one of the episodes is about Manhattan Beach, the town, right? Up the road, uh, down the road. Um, thank you. <laughs> right down the road, right south the road, um, here in LA County, uh, and the story of one of the founding families of Manhattan Beach, who were a black couple named Bruce and um, uh, Charles and Willa Bruce, and they had a beach resort there in 1912. Uh, was when they first bought the land and developed it over the course of the next decade or so, and. Uh, it was this sort of black beach-going paradise in Manhattan Beach, which if you all know, Manhattan Beach is not today a black beach-going paradise. <laughs> it's a beautiful town, lovely. Um, you know, the sort of beach area is 99% white. Um, and yet, um, if it hadn't been for the Klan violence and then the... Uh, decision by the town, the city council to use eminent domain to seize the property and create a public park, which for 30 something years was nothing. Um, you know, and this is the thing that I, I learned by going back there. Um, you know, we would have had a thriving black surf culture. Mm. Um, I went surfing with this amazing group called Color the Water, who uh, helps people of color surf. Um, and one of the co-founders uh, told me that, just sort of like helped me envision that. Like if, if, if there had always been hundreds of black beachgoers coming to this amazing surf break um, for the last hundred years, you know, there'd be a LeBron James of surfing, right? Um, and this Saturday, there's actually gonna be this, the biggest ever gathering of black surfers in Huntington Beach, California. Um, and it's really cool. So that's one of the things I learned. Uh, so actually, I should say the most important part of the story, which was that um, the city, I mean, the county of LA actually owned the land, owns the land, and as of last year, with the leadership of um, supervisors Mitchell and Han, gave the land back to the Bruce's family. Yep. And it's the first ever case that we know of of land back and reparations and restitution to a family. And so it's really exciting. We have a question here. Hi, my name is Daryl. Hi, Daryl. Um, and uh, I'm a big, big fan. Oh, thanks, Daryl. Of mine, thank you. Uh, <laughs> of, of both you ladies. Bitch. Uh, Ms. McGee is one of my favorite pundits. I'm uh, in, in the best sense of the word. Thank you. Uh, um, to piggyback on partly what you just said, um, the last, I was at another Zocalo event and we, and I mentioned the, the Wilmington Lie book had come out at that time. Mm. And I'm fascinated 
in the spirit of your book and partly in the spirit of that book with the idea of the opportunities that we had as Americans to all come together and be this multicultural society, you know, throughout our histories. Can you share with, with us any of the stories that you've learned over the course of researching this book or just in general? Um, and, and maybe let people know about Wilmington if they don't know about Wilmington. So the, I'm actually not familiar with the Wilmington lie. Can you tell us what that is? Okay, so the book Wilmington Lie was, um, at the time, Wilmington, North Carolina was one of the most progressive and economically powerful cities in the South. And it is, it is a town, it was a city that basically was decimated by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It was the first, I shouldn't say first, it is the first documented in modern times, coup, American coup, in which mm. uh, multicultural leadership, black and white leadership, black and white middle class, police officers, elected officials, based on a strategic use of white supremacy, um, ran out the leadership, mm -hmm. ran out, much like Tulsa, mm -hmm. the the people who had economic businesses in town, mm -hmm. blacks, um, and basically, basically took Wilmington over and, mm -hmm. and, and, and basically destroyed what was something that was working towards a real multicultural American society. Mm -hmm. hmm. Thank you. Yeah. The other thing is um, it's the uh, power of the narrative. Um, I, you know, I think the storytelling and changing that narrative and lifting up those stories. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we were able to talk about Wilmington and Broad Beach and, and Tulsa, mm -hmm. I think it starts to change that consciousness. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, my name is Philip. Um, yeah, thanks for having this. Um, I just had a question. I was wondering, how, how would you recommend uh, within communities of color Mm. Um, challenging, perhaps, um, the sense that, I guess, divisions mm -hmm. within communities of color, because oftentimes there's a sense like, let's say in black communities, like, oh, once, you know, certain people have achieved the American dream or opportunities, there might be a sense of, oh, we're the good black people, those are the bad black people. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you challenge, mm -hmm. uh, how do you challenge that division? That's a really powerful question. Thank mm -hmm. you, Philip. Um, whether it's you know class divisions, respectability politics within the black community, whether it's you know we talk about people of color as if that is a community, mm -hmm. um, and California is you know here to show us that it is it is not not yet, right? Um, and so it it is the work, right? Um, what's interesting is that you find the same tropes, right? The same stories, the same justifications, the same logic, the same stories um, being used and levied against one another, mm -hmm. you know, even within the group, right? And so I think once you begin to recognize them and recognize where they come from, um, you know, 
the idea, for example, uh, that black people are lazy, right? Um, where did that come from? It's a sort of widespread kind of slur used against black people, a negative stereotype. Um, you know, it came from the need to justify enslaving and torturing black people to get them to work, right? And so if we recognize that that's where it came from, then maybe we're a little bit more on guard mm. for its use today and say, what is this justifying today, right? Why are we still using this plantation logic? Um, so I think part of it is recognizing the, the tropes. Um, and that's why, again, like as the cultural conversation and fits and starts and excesses and missed opportunities has raised consciousness among all of us about the way that racism courses through our society today and about our history, um, that is the most powerful thing. That is what is hard to undo. And that's why, you know, these, these very well-funded, well-organized political operatives are trying to stop our children, our employees in corporations from thinking things, mm -hmm. from reading things, from learning things, right. from knowing things, because that's the most powerful piece. Um, good evening, Ms. McGee. Good evening. My name is Idris Muhammad. I'm from the Fellowship Initiative of Los Angeles. Uh, my question speaks on your point of solidarity, you know, coming together, being together, working together and functioning as a, you know, community of minorities. Um, where do we head from here? Mm. Because there are lots of things that we can't do as a community, but there are lots of things that we can do. And I would like to know your input on how we should head forward in such a racist society. Thank you. And Heather, before you answer that question, I just want to recognize um, Rick Barragon, who's in the audience. And Rick is with J.P. Morgan Chase. And I don't know if you know about Jamie Dimon, who's the president and CEO of J.P. Morgan uh -huh. Chase, has Black Pathways. Um, and this young man is from the TFI program oh, that I is see. part of that initiative. Oh, great. Wonderful. Wonderful. So I think that's very helpful. Thank you. So I think that the... Um, I think that the financial sector has such an opportunity. I mean, I will say, we were chatting about this yeah. earlier. One of the oddest things that's happened with uh, the some of us is that it's been really um, embraced by many business leaders um, in a way that I was not anticipating. There's a lot of money that you talk about in the book that's being left <laughs> on the I table. I mean, yes, it's true, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I think... It's, I'm, I'm, it's not that I wasn't anticipating or wasn't trying, right, to get people who think of the world through an economic lens to, you know, to understand their self-interest in addressing racism and inequality. Um, but it, it's just been, it's, it's put me in some odd rooms, right? Um, the book won a best business book of the year from this, uh, right? You know, um, uh, you know, a big Fortune 500, you know, insurance company had all, you know, their team read it, bought like a thousand copies, like it was fifteen thousand copies. And I was like, what? What is going on? Like, you know, I was like, do they really read it? Because every time a corporation is mentioned by name, they're a villain. Yeah. In this book, That's right. I wasn't what I was. In, you know, it was just it was you're just telling the truth. I was telling, right? And so it is interesting to me to think about what, um, 
particularly people who, whether they're at the very top or in middle management or they're you know, making their way in at the very beginning, who want to do the right thing, who have values that say, absolutely, everybody should be at this table. Everyone should have this economic opportunity. Everyone should be a part of the prosperity that this company is creating. Um, how can they use the idea of uprooting the zero sum to have conversations about diversity and equity and even further justice with people that normally would not be so receptive to it? You know, um, that's the, I think an important question. And I think a follow on from the attention that was paid in 2020 uh, to, uh, to the financial costs of racism, some really great research Citigroup, the 16 trillion over 20 years, right. the McKinsey thing on Black Hollywood and all the sort of like money left on the table is okay. So now, in addition to initiatives that can happen from your bank, where is your voice for the policy changes? Because yeah. ultimately, you know, it is about reparations. It is about wealth. It is about truly saying that it was the government that stole the wealth, that robbed the wealth. And it is our government that has to reinvest in our collective future. And I think, if I, before we get to the question more, I think that, um, that the murder of George Floyd on public television and watching a man cry out for his mother moved America, white America, to a point that I'd never seen mm -hmm. in my history. And that I think while there's been a decline in support for social justice post George Floyd, I think there's still 35%, if the number is, if I recall that number correctly, there's still 35% of white Americans that want to find a solution mm -hmm. toward that solidarity dividend. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a both right. and. All right, I'm excited. First of all, thank you for your time. Thank you for risking your life to speak this because um, yeah, just thank you so much because I've been persecuted, you know, and you say, I never felt that doing this is like, what? And just so thank you so much. The first thing I want to say, and I have so many questions, but <laughs> one of them is, my name is Harold, by the way, Miss McGee. Yeah. So good to meet you. I'm so nervous. Uh, okay. The question is, uh, well, it's a serious question. Um, you know, um, that oh, white American or that black American or that brown American or that Asian American right, that perhaps I've been persecuted by whites, blacks, and my own people, right? And it, it's, it's a challenge to not prejudge. Mm. I'm 30, and I'm still like, and I've been the racist to, and people are racist to me, but it's been a challenge to not prejudge all the time, you know? Uh, so what would you recommend me or someone who knows and sees that weakness and they want to grow? Like, we're ashamed to think of the things we think about. What would you recommend? What mindset would you recommend? What book besides the one that you wrote what you recommend. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, so I would say we all have biases. It's not possible to live in this world. First of all, it's not possible to be human to understand the millions of pieces of information that are coming into our brain all the time without categorizing, 
without creating links and associations between what we're seeing right now and something we've seen and known before, right? That's just how the mind works. It's important for us to function, mm. us to take these mental shortcuts. It says, you know, this is a man over there. That's what that person's like. I, this is a, these are flowers. I, I'm not really thinking about the fact that they're peonies and roses. I'm just, you know, looking out the corner of my eye, I see flowers. There's a meaning there. Ooh, nice, right? Keep it going, right? Like I can't, we can't stay and dwell and take on each individual um, sort of try to gather enough information to make individual judgments about uh, things and people on all of their merits, right? That's just not the way the brain works. And yet, because of the pervasiveness of white supremacist notions of what is good and what is bad, mm. the associations so often that we are making, um, and I would say all of us who live in this society um, oftentimes track on that pattern. And so what you need to begin to do is learn to interrupt that. And um, I mean, the, the tone with which you asked the question was sort of the right one, which was sort of have a little bit of, uh, hold it lightly, right? Have a little bit of grace with yourself. Right. Um, don't go into a shame spiral. Yep. Um, be able to look at it and say, look at that. Look at that old story that came up again. Who told me that story? Where'd it come from, right? And, and toss it, right? As opposed to feeling like, you know, getting triggered, basically. And then you end up stepping over yourself and making a whole mess of things, right? Um, usually making things worse. But if you can hold, if we can all hold of one another and we can hold ourselves with a little bit of grace, we are trying on our own to navigate a society that is has very competing messages all the time about who we're supposed to be to one another, whether race matters, you know, who are the good guys, who are the villains in the story of social progress. And so, um, yeah, just that little bit of grace and maybe even a little humor, I think it's really helpful. That's for sure. We have our last question of the night. Okay. Hello, oh, hello. Everyone, this is Aaron Darling. Aaron Darling was my classmate at law school and he is running for city council from the west side of LA. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hello, Heather Miggy. Great to see you. My question for you is, um, the, especially since 2016, we've seen a transition from kind of the pernicious dog whistle politics to explicit white nationalism. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what are your thoughts um, that in response to explicit white nationalism and the growing threat to our democracy that it poses, um, that there is a perhaps increased chance of kind of multiracial organizing yeah. because the threat is now even looms greater. I think that's right. Thank you, Aaron. Um, so yeah, it's all out in the open now, right? I mean, we um, we we know what the counter narrative is. It's not subtle. It's not about taxes, right? It's actually actually just about um, people of color are coming to take your country from you. Um, and so, what are the opportunities there? The opportunities, as they've always been, have been for each and every one of us to decide um, what we're willing to tolerate and how much we're willing to fight to preserve our, our core values, right? And to live in a society that upholds them. And to have many of these sort of fence sitters and gatekeepers whether that's big institutions in corporate America, whether that's the kinds of um, you know, leaders who have not been quote unquote political, 
um, also call on them to make it clear that um, that this is not a political debate. This is something far, far, far more dangerous and that we've been here before. Most societies have been here before and that ultimately it is not, it's a relative handful of people who are selling these ideas. And you can actually name them, track them, yep. track their money, track their advertisers, mm -hmm. track their sponsors, track their shareholders, right? They, you know, like their contractors, like it actually, and this is one of the things I love about Color of Change, which is why I volunteer on the board of the organization, is that they really do understand that there are enablers to this, be, this these structural forces. And they have names, and they have ticker tape signs, you know, um, and, and that that's a really important piece that we can all help use this moment where hopefully we are a lot more awake about what's going on than we were five years ago even. Well, your book is certainly helping us get there. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for authoring this book. Um, thank you, everyone. How about Renata's questions? Wonderful. And, and really, um, you know, if I can, I do have homework. Um, and thank you to Zocalo for recognizing this great work. Thank you to Tim Disney um, for his great support um, of this book prize. Um, Heather, you lay out in such a powerful and communal manner the work we must all engage, all of us, um, here on television um, or in the YouTube channel, um, you lay out very clear what we must all do to strengthen our, our human connectedness, um, our social cohesion. cohesion. Um, I've always believed, I've always said that democracy is a team sport. Um, and it was interesting reading an article that you actually paraphrased that, of saying that we must, as Americans, put our best players mm -hmm. on the, on the mm -hmm. court, mm -hmm. on the field, scoring the most points for mm -hmm. America. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully your, your book continues to be a guide for us to do just that, because it Thank does you. take all of us. Thank you. Um, yes, another round of applause, please. Um, the um, books to your stage right, um, please, by many of them. Uh, it takes a village. Um, join us back here at Zocalo in July. In the meantime, please um, register for the newsletter and the podcast so you can continue to be engaged um, in the great work that Zocalo Public Square does. So thank you for thank joining you. us. Well, Have a nice evening. <laughs>